I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no editing, except judicious use of the pause and rewind buttons and minimal digital trickery. This is Encounter 68, 90s magazine mixtape. It's gimmicks on top of gimmicks for you this episode. First, we return to our Zine Scene series, and it's been quite a while since we've done so. Also, and this was at the request of our associate producer, Simpson Hanover, in keeping with the 90s theme, this is being recorded more or less live to tape with minimal overdubs and editing. How would I have done this show 20-odd years ago if podcasts were a thing? This is how. Basically, unless it was a flub that made things completely incomprehensible, not, um, not an impossibility, we didn't fix it. So this episode is a little different than what we've done before, but I think it'll be fun, and I'm sure you'll let me know if it isn't. Um, if anybody wants to know exactly what my, uh, what my process or workflow was for this, um, tell me on Twitter and I will, I will tell you all about my Marantz field recorder and my Behringer mixer and um, the, the stuff I do. So um, if you've been listening for a while, you know how our magazine-themed episodes work. But if you're new, here's a rundown. I take a decade, in this case the 1990s, and I, uh, I look through a variety of magazines and marvel at the range and depth of the UFO scene during that time. Now, there is one major rule that I more or less follow when doing these, and that is that I don't dwell on major stories of the era. Er, era. This is for a couple of reasons. First and foremost is that I've either done an episode on the topic already, or I'm probably not going to. So, or I'm rather, I'm probably going to. So I'm trying to avoid sort of double dipping. So there won't be any 50th anniversary of Roswell stuff in this episode, or really much Roswell at all. Another reason is that we can only really know what the big stories would be with the benefit of hindsight. So I try to do these installments focusing on what at the time would have jumped out at me. I love weird ads, for example. So we've got some weird ads. I love letters to editors. I love UFO-themed poetry. Your mileage, of course, may vary. Finally, while I wish I had physical copies of all of these magazines to work with, I don't. I'll mention them again, but the Archives for the Unexplained has an amazing repository of digital, searchable scans of hundreds of magazines, and they've been very valuable. We won't necessarily be going in chronological order for this one, but instead we'll be starting out with a topic, or, or really a person, who was integral to the paranormal world of the 1990s. Okay, and I am, I am playing the, the sound effects sort of live as I'm recording, so I was sort of taken by surprise a little bit. There are a few things from the 1990s that are more significant than the rise of the modern talk radio format at least in terms of American political culture. The end of FCC enforcement of its Fairness Doctrine regulations in 1987 led to a blossoming of unabashedly partisan programming, particularly on radio. Part of this blossoming was the rise to prominence of a radio host in Nevada who had come to dominate overnight radio in the 1990s, Art Bell. Now, 
There is or there will be a 90s UFO radio episode somewhere in our future. But for right now, I want to look at Art Bell's After Dark newsletter. In particular, its first year of publication, 1995. In 1995, Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM was not exactly what we think of it today. Um, the memory cheats a little bit there, because in 1993, 94, 95, it was largely a caller-driven platform for discussion of news and political topics, and it reflected Bell's more or less right libertarian perspective that he seemed to hold at the time. The paranormal stuff, UFOs, psychic predictions of future disasters, ghosts, were mostly the province of Dreamland, Art's weekend program. Little by little, in 1995, the Coast to Coast show became more paranormal and less politically dominated, and the development of the newsletter at the time reflects that. Let's look at the first issue in January of 1995 for an example of the publication promoting, and perhaps overstating, the power of talk radio. With an estimated listening audience of around 3 million, Art Bell is a leader in the one segment of the electronic media that doesn't treat Americans as though they were in kindergarten. Indeed, for an increasingly large segment of society, talk radio has emerged as the chief source of uncensored, uncooked news and information. In stark contrast to most of the print and television news media, not to mention Hollywood and the rest of the popular culture, talk radio overwhelmingly champions the values, concerns, and best interests of the average, hard-working, tax-paying American. I'm not going to dwell on the political stuff, but I do want to recommend the book The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism by Steve Kornacki for an excellent overview of the political changes of this era, including the role of talk radio. Also in this uh, issue of After Dark was an extensive list of all the guns banned by the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, and in its Dreamland section, an interview with Richard Hoagland, the face on Mars guy, who would be an Art Bell regular. Here, Hoagland is asked about the impact on society, what, what the impact of society would be if the existence of ancient ruins in space was to be revealed. It comes down to a matter of faith in human beings. If you believe that human beings are sheep to be led, manipulated, dictated to, managed, and carefully controlled, that they cannot handle decisions responsibly, then you will reach one set of conclusions. If you're a Jeffersonian type, like I am, who really believes that the Constitution was a stunning document based on the best in human nature, and that every time there is a crisis and we level with the American people that they will rise to the occasion, you'll reach very different conclusions. I'm betting on the latter. Richard Hoagland, noted Jeffersonian type. I'm not sure Hoagie's conception of the Constitution presented here is actually in line with Jefferson's thoughts in any possible way, but hey, it's not like Hogan, Hoagland hasn't had enough other credibility issues over the years um, that we can look at if we want. We don't need to pick on his, uh, his historical um, lack of knowledge. Now, in February 95, long before the Y2K stuff that would see Art's airwaves crowded with ads for storable food, we have this checklist from Don McIlvaney about what we all need to take care of to be prepared for anything. Financial self-sufficiency. Get out of debt. Get liquid as rapidly as possible. Put 25 to 30% of your assets into precious metals. 
develop a second source of income by starting a cottage business or home-based business. Information self-sufficiency. Develop alternate sources of information, particularly talk radio and newsletters. Education self-sufficiency. They're trying to destroy our kids' minds in the public schools and prepare them for the new world order. Homeschooling is a great new movement. You've got a million kids who have punched a major loophole in the educational monopoly that the political left has had. Food self-sufficiency. Very simply, store a year's supply of survival food and learn to grow things. Firearms self-sufficiency. Important for everyone, especially if you live in the city. Every family ought to have a minimum of at least a rifle, a shotgun, and a pistol in their home. I would also advise every woman to carry pepper mace. It's extremely effective, as I found out when a friend accidentally sprayed me in the face with it. I'm sure it was an accident. I, I'm, I'm sure this guy, um, yeah, it was an accident, sure. Uh, this guy's actually op- optimistic compared to some of the doomsday prepping types that would pop up from time to time. Oh, and in 1995, you could go with Art and Ramona on a trip. Yes, a trip with Art and Ramona. Night Reflections. That's the wrong clip. Visit Hong Kong and Bangkok with Art and Ramona. The magic of the Orient is something to experience, and this spring you can be a part of it. Art has always wanted to see Hong Kong, and there isn't much time left. After a hundred years of British rule, Hong Kong, the city famous for its bargain basement shopping and fabulous nightlife, will be turned over to the communist Chinese in 1997. It will never be the same. So join Art in seizing the opportunity of a lifetime before the door of democracy closes. Oh, wow. So that was from the March 1995 issue of After Dark, and I've got to say that it would have been sort of a, a weird sort of fun, but it would have been a lot of fun to to go to Hong Kong and, and Bangkok with Art Bell, although I'm not sure I would have wanted to hang out with the type of people who would have spent three grand to go to Hong Kong and Bangkok with Art Bell. If any of you out there were on this trip by any chance, please get in touch. I've, um, I've got some questions. The letters to the editor also were, uh, were usually really good, and uh, this one included a poem. Night Reflections Whitley Strieber, Billy Meyer, Fire in the Sky John Lear, Bob Lazar, and Area 51 Who's to know? Who's to say? Are they talking just for fun? Should we listen? Should we pray? Will they arrive? Will we survive? past 1995. Radio man Art Bell on his journey through the night, broadcast from heights somewhere between the depths of deep and hidden dreams. What does he know, yet dare not show? Things too dark, and things of light. John the 23rd, we've heard, his diary has the word. Chris Columbus in the Journal of the Trip Watched the watchers, fellow travelers too, some upon, some above, the brooding ocean blue. Mount Rainier, the capital, and Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947, from the sky in broad daylight, appearing like signs from heaven. 
Within, within the amber waves of grain, signs of times, strange yet plain, Metagorge, Nostradamus, Wheel of Ezekiel, and now on earth, many seek Emmanuel. Gordon Michael, Michael Brown, gentle warnings all around, and near sundown the angels now abound, pyramids low, pyramids high, face of man and the sky. Things to come, very soon all will look near the moon. Will they arrive? Will we survive? Shortly after 1995? This is from the November 1995 issue and was written by Aaron Thomas Millsap of Chico, California. While as poetry it's not great, it's really interesting to see this because if we take this seriously and choose to believe that the poet is sincere, then Mr. Millsap uh, apparently believed everything he ever heard on Art Bell's program. Mr. Millsap, if you're out there, I would love to know if you wrote a variation on this poem every year and whether or not you ever did get the help you clearly need. But we kid, Mr. Millsap. By the way, Gordon Michael, the Gordon Michael he mentions is Gordon Michael Scallion, um, who I, I almost made a weird joke about onions there. Um, Gordon Michael Scallion, who was often on the show talking about the massive earth changes coming that would reshape the landscape with, uh, with, with both flood and, ca- flood and famine and, and cause untold horrors. He also had these more positive predictions that were presented in the May 1995 issue. The visions I see for these times are not all bleak. I also see a planetary spiritual awakening occurring during the 1990s. A vision I've seen for the year 2002 is of a new earth, reborn, with its people living in harmony with each other. Lush tropical settings cover many parts of the United States. Communities seem to be located more in rural areas than in cities. The air is clean and there is no longer an ozone hole. I see circular clustered homes, domes made of a kind of living membrane that provides self-adjusting heating, lighting, and cooling. There are no automobiles, but there does appear to be a new form of public transportation, long, cigar-shaped craft that move along the ground silently without wheels. The average lifespan has expanded to 150 years because of the Earth's new vibrations and the consciousness of its inhabitants. Telepathy is common between individuals and between people and animals. There are new flowers, plants, and trees which provide herbal remedies for this. The diseases of the 20th century are gone, including AIDS and other plagues of the tribulation. Color and sound therapy are the predominant healing modalities. In the year 2002, the world has become a lunar society guided by intuition. There is a common spiritual belief on the planet termed the oneness, a belief in the interrelatedness of all life. The millennium of peace has arrived and a new cycle begins. So there was a, a slight um, burble in that uh, in that clip I just played. Um, it was an unavoidable error, and I apologize. This is why digital stuff is good, and associate producer Simpson J. Hanover has a lot to answer for for talking me into this. Anyway, if, um, if, if, if Gordon's predictions there don't convince you that predicting stuff publicly will probably make you look like an idiot, I don't know what would. 
what I what I also love about these after dark newsletters, in addition to the 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 crazy positive sort of happy predictions that um, that never happened, there are also some some real fears about technology. If you've read Art Bell's book The Quickening, which you can find for seventy five cents um, through most online used booksellers, he talks about the acceleration of of on of technology and. Um, one of the things that that he has a lot of concern about is is VR, virtual reality, and uh, so did this letter writer in the May 1995 issue. This is from a medical doctor named Dr. Joseph Guida. Your March 95 feature article on virtual reality was quite sobering to my wife and me, both of whom are longtime Art Bell listeners. Most people view VR as a highly stimulating technology with future applications in science, technology, and entertainment. In most cases, however, they ignore the negative side of VR as a mind-controlling escape from reality. Your article served to alert your readers to the dark side of VR and its implications for that large segment of society that is vulnerable to hypnotism. Although your analysis was balanced, I feel that the negative aspect of VR is a surface that has hardly been scratched. As a physician with formal exposure to analysis of the human psyche and its inevitable weaknesses, in my opinion, VR may well represent the, quote, drug of choice, end quote, of the 21st century. The sexual implications of this technology could have devastating consequences for the weak-minded segments of society. Even worse, the sociopathic segment could enhance and find justification for their perverse desires. VR could become the vehicle for the expression of abnormal behaviors which would breach the thresholds of both morality and legality. Is there any 90s era technological prediction that flamed out as badly as virtual reality? I mean, right now, it's nearly 2020, and we're finally getting to the point where virtual reality headsets, Oculus-type stuff, is, uh, is, is in wide enough use that you know people might be concerned about it, but I don't really think there is any. My one concern about VR is that I, I get kind of motion sick when I've, when I've tried it, and, and also I'm bad at the games I've found. Anyway, um... Also, I just want to say the sociopathic segment is a great potential band name, so somebody out there run with that. By the way, a subscription to After Dark in 1995 was $30 for 12 16-page issues. That's $50 in today's money. I um I don't know if it would have been worth it. The other thing I learned from from looking at these After Dark newsletters in 1995 is I've always sort of wondered why I, I wasn't really aware of Art Bell um, in the 90s when he was when he sort of sort of rolling out nationwide and when I was really getting deeply into this stuff. And looking at the affiliate list, nowhere where I lived in the 90s, at least 95, 96, there were no Art Bell affiliates around. So even if I would have been up in the middle of the night playing with an AM radio, I wouldn't have picked up Art Bell. Um in, in fact, I, I, fa I think I'm pretty sure I stumbled across Jeff Rentz's program. Yikes. Um, Jeff Rentz's program um, before I did the Art Bell program. So um, I was just, it was nice to see an affiliate list. And also, it's, it's interesting to look at the, the list of tapes for sale because um, very much this is uh, the best of Art Bell is available, not every single episode. So 
if you've wondered why when you're out looking for Art Bell shows online, completely legally, um, why it's always seems to be the same things, it's because the ones that survive online are pretty much the ones that were sold on cassette. So, next magazine. I'm not sure for sure. I'm not sure for sure. I don't know this for sure, rather. But the British magazine Flying Saucer Review had to be among the longest-running periodicals out there in the UFO scene. We've already, on this show, looked at issues from the mid-1950s, and now we're looking at some from the 90s. The editor at this time was the elderly Gordon Creighton, who would die in 2003 at the age of 96. And his editorials in, um, in, in some of these 90s issues are, are decidedly odd. And this is a good place to point out that the opinions and views of the writers we quote are not necessarily those of the Saucer Life, Chizo Media LLC, or anyone associated with the show. Countdown to satanic victory? We have often hinted that many of our so-called humans are not human at all. We once asked a Sufi teacher how we might be sure that someone was truly human, and he answered, see if they show compassion. There are plenty here who display no shred of that, and may resemble more closely those terrible alien interlopers that are allegedly already here, ensconced in deep underground bases, and engaged in experiments on human victims. An American court recently found an individual of unnatural habits and tastes guilty of having taken 17 of his cronies for lunch, literally, some of them in sandwiches. Crime and violence are now at an all-time high in the USA and Britain, countries once held to be advanced and civilized. We're seeing startling increases in rape, sexual assaults and murders of young children, and shootouts by hooligans who mow down complete strangers around them. Pernicious mind-changing drugs and such habits as glue-sniffing all seem signs that a powerful force from outside of mankind is engaged in driving us like the gathering swine over the cliff and into the abyss. Is something else being prepared which will soon take our place here? Demonic possession is nothing new. All the great religions have warned of it. Um, if this guy's worried about glue sniffing, nobody tell him about cocaine, okay? Um, good Lord. That's from the spring 1992 issue. Um, and I have to say, I did actually clean that up a little bit. He, um, he actually got fairly offensive. Um, so there's nothing particularly novel about a dynamic, demonic connection to UFOs. However... I didn't really notice much about UFOs in this editorial, apart from a, a, a oblique reference uh, to some aspects of the abduction experience. And I assume that the reference to taking cronies to lunch is a Jeffrey Dahmer reference. This is uh, this really is just old man yells at cloud territory, as is this one. New age, new world order. In August 1914, British Foreign Secretary Lord Grey murmured, all over Europe, the lights are going out. When will they ever come on again? We are far beyond that point now, and all over our world, all standards, all decencies are falling like the autumn leaves. A downhill rush. And it's all astutely master-minded. There is a plan for the destruction of mankind. Unquestionably, anybody who has studied the world's press and other media has got to admit that some of our chaps here rate right near the top among the scum skunks and cloaca spreaders of the nations. Go for the royals, boys. 
It worked in Russia in 1917, and it'll work again here now. Nothing else would bring the entire fabric down so fast. Every form of violence flourishes. Murder and mayhem, rape and mutilation of helpless women and children, all cunningly stimulated by the demonic mind-bending scourge of drugs. Our governing circles stand like petrified rabbits, hypnotized by the stoat, and, except for a few courageous American states, unable to extirpate the evil. I recall how in, in China I used to watch the soldiers of the nationalist government shooting or beheading the drug pushers. One swipe, and the head was neatly off, and I never heard a single one of them being caught at it again. Flying? Saucer? Review. Luckily, there is some UFO-related content in, in the mag once we get away from the, the editorials. But I've, I've got to say, I really enjoyed doing my Gordon Creighton voice. Um, that, was, that was fun. In this issue, from August of 1992, Ann Druffel has an extensive article on resisting alien abductions. And this is an update to research and theories she had, she had sort of introduced both in FSR and the MUFON Journal. She acknowledges that some UFO encounters are benign and that also there are experiencers who welcome their contact with these beings. But this is not always the case. It seems undeniable, however, that various forms of trauma are sustained by close encounter witnesses during typical abduction scenarios. The human race has a basic right to preserve itself from unwanted interference, especially from unidentifiable beings. As regards the common notion in the field that UFO entities are helping the human race evolve, nothing is stated in the great works of philosophy or religion about other orders of creation being responsible for us. The sole exception to this is, possibly, a class of beings referred to as angels, which according to the great works such as the Koran and the Old and New Testaments, are messengers from God, who specifically deliver warnings of personal or group danger. The popular concept that human beings have guardian angels who help guide and direct us throughout our life is also commonly held. Although books on angels are currently very popular, little is known definitely about the essential nature of these spiritual beings. So a couple of things here that I find interesting. The first is the contention that in 1992, the quote, common notion in the field, end quote, was that the saucer folk are helping us to evolve. No one can deny that such a viewpoint existed, but to call it common in the early 90s is, I think, pushing it a little. The other thing that struck me is the very superficial treatment of angels that owes far more to the sort of generic images of basic cherubs with captions like, my guardian angel watches over me, than to what may be written about heavenly messengers in the Quran or the Old and New Testament. It's not for nothing that every appearance of an angel in the Bible begins with the angel saying, do not be afraid. These things sound um, kind of scary. Angels aside, Druffel soon gets to her fundamental argument, and it's nothing that should be new to you if you've listened to the show in the past. My working hypothesis at the present time is that abducting entities are not extraterrestrial. If they were, they would be undoubtedly superior to us, at least technologically, and resistance techniques simply would not work against them. Yet more and more evidence is surfacing that these bedroom intruders can be driven off. It is more logical to hypothesize that these unidentified intelligences are from an intradimensional source or sources, 
and are very possibly perceived by witnesses in altered states of consciousness. Intradimensional creatures such as the Celtic fairy folk, the Muslim jinns, the incubi of medieval times, the old hag of Newfoundland, and other unworldly creatures have reportedly been harassing, kidnapping, and imposing sexual encounters upon members of the human race for thousands of years. Isn't it logical to hypothesize that our modern UFO-abducting entities are simply an old human problem dressed in spacesuits to fit our present cultural expectations? Now, Druffle's examples of how people have resisted assault by whatever these things are tended to fall into a couple of categories. First, there was the simple physical and mental struggle. For example, an experiencer finding themselves paralyzed in their bed by an unknown presence fought back and was able to move after much effort. The other techniques included prayer and strong emotional responses, particularly rage. So her argument, as I understand it, is, is basically that because some have been able to resist, this makes it less likely that the visitors are aliens because alien technology would be impossible for humans to overcome. Now, how can she know this? Maybe their technology doesn't work on everyone's brains the same way. Their paralyzing space beams may be calibrated for a certain range, and potential, some potential abductees who fall outside of the range might be less affected. It's like those YouTube videos where someone is sprayed with mace or something and is seemingly unaffected by it and continues to, to sort of rage on and do whatever they were doing that got them maced in the first place. That's not to say that I think abductions are aliens necessarily. I just don't like her reasoning that, well, if they were aliens, they'd be too powerful for, they'd have technology that we couldn't overcome. Um, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. So, yeah. We'll return to the newsstand in a bit, but first let's look ahead. Next time on The Saucer Life, it'll be a bit of a potpourri. Scattered throughout the studio are bits and pieces of information, documents, half-written scripts, and other stuff that I started working on for an episode and then realized there wasn't really enough to justify an entire show. So Encounter 69 is going to be made up of two smaller pieces that are two smaller stories that are each sort of interesting, but sort of brief. First, we're returning to the contactees with the mysterious Mitchell sisters, and in the second part, we'll examine the Kinross incident, a fascinating and troubling encounter from 1953. In the meantime, you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You may follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and so on. Also, I wanted to thank everyone for the great feedback on our Kelly Goblinsville episode. I was pleased that people seemed to enjoy it, as it's such a weird story, but has been discussed seemingly endlessly. But I, I got a lot of great feedback from it. Now, back to the magazines, if I can find the whoosh sound, and there it is. Okay, let's next look at a couple issues of UFO Magazine. This was the glossy newsstand mag back in the day, and for quite a while into the 21st century. In its heyday, it was edited by Vicki Cooper, later Vicki Cooper Ecker, with contributions by research director Don Ecker and a reliable crew of, of really good writers. I've got two issues we're going to look at. Um, First is the, um, the September-October 1992 issue and also the June 1999 issue. And there really are some interesting changes. 
1992. It's a Mars special. So, sorry, fell asleep there for a sec. We've That was a real yawn, by the way. We've already heard from Hoagland once. That's one time too many, one time more than I ever wanted to have in this show when I started off. Instead, I want to look at the really interesting contrast we, we see here. First, there's an ad for the Benowitz Papers, a Timothy Green Beckley production. This book is $25 per copy, plus $3.50 shipping and handling. So $28.50 in today's money, $51 and, and change. So if you read this book, this is what you're going to learn. Now, in the Benowitz papers, you can read the full account of the silencing of this research scientist and how the government may actually be cooperating with hostile aliens in the ultimate deception of all time. Some of the subjects covered include the mysterious OSI agent Richard Doty. Did he secretly release disinformation on cases of crashed UFOs and other important documents? What are the possible identities of the secret group within the military known as the Aviary who are trying to get the truth out while going against official policy? Why is it necessary to interrogate and hypnotize witnesses only in certain locations using specific security measures and what these exact measures consist of? The operation of Benowitz's computer thought communications link the various levels of alien society identified for the first time. Why, in most cases, ETs cannot be photographed? Do these aliens want to bring spiritual enlightenment for us all, or enslave the human race? So, I hope Mr. Beckley, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Beckley rather, really hoped that people wouldn't read the column later in that same issue by former NICAP official and... Um, and kind of killjoy Richard Hall about the, uh, the the Benowitz episode because he presents a slightly different, slightly less credulous take than um, than than you might find in the Benowitz papers. The activities of former special agent of Air Force Office of Special Intelligence Richard Doty and UFO researcher Bill Moore vis-a-vis -vis the ludicrous UFO cover-up live broadcast and the disgraceful Benowitz episode in both of which deliberately false information was planted for manipulative purposes, have the strong appearance of disinformation. Moore should also be given the Hutzpah Award of the Year for adding insult to injury by trying to sell a book about his and Doty's disreputable activities. But then, in a long line of bird titles given to the game players, I think Moore may deserve the title, Pigeon. He goes on to discuss other examples of what he perceives to be disinformation, including Leonard Stringfield's books on crashed saucer cases. He also puts himself and NICAP over huge as being way too clever and smart to have ever fallen for this kind of disinformation campaign. There was also, um, in this magazine, a, uh, an ad for a video for sale that has some relevance today and resonance today. Is he a government whistleblower or a cosmic charlatan? Now you can decide. The man is Bob Lazar. You have heard his story. You have seen his video. But what is the real truth? Get this report. What do you really know about him? Get this report. Should you believe him? Get this report. And find out. 
Uh, that report was, uh, again, adjusted for today's money, going to run you about 50 bucks. And there's really very little new under the sun, isn't there? Uh, we're going to charge you a lot of money for a, a, a video about Bob Lazar, and now you'll know the truth. Um, I've heard that somewhere relatively recently. Finally, in this 1992 issue, an ad, I can't believe I'm saying this, an ad for a UFO-themed board game called Euphoria. The game's four categories are 1. Trivia, 2. True-False, 3. ESP, and 4. Impromptu. Besides general knowledge of UFO phenomenon, players must use their sixth sense in the ESP category, similar to the reported telepathic communications occurring during extraterrestrial contacts. Further, in the impromptu category, players are given a situation that they must expand on with a story, adding to the fun and perhaps jogging hidden memories of UFO experiences. Any board game that jogs hidden memories of UFO experiences is only going, or of, of anything else, is only going to lead to trouble for everybody involved. But if any of you have this, um, I need you to film a session where you and and some some compatriots film yourselves playing the game and uh, and throw that up on YouTube because I want to see this game in action. Now, by 1995, things had changed a little bit with Bill Burns co-author of the perennial bestseller The Day After Roswell, taking over as publisher. Vicki Cooper Ecker was still on the masthead as editor-in-chief, Don Ecker was still research director, and Richard Hall still had a column. Uh, in this issue, the column was about the millennium bug, the Y2K panic, millennium madness, and the role of scammers and charlatans, that, that the role they played in manipulating the public, and he ties this into the UFO field. When people are unable to come to grips with the UFO problem, the manipulators inexorably flow into the vacuum like an evil force of nature. If they are clever, they conceal their game behind a facade of science, high moral purpose, or even patriotism. But there are good reasons why people will tend to follow them. They seem to offer answers, whereas the majority of institutions of society offer very little in the way of guidance. Science remains aloof. The news media turn up their noses. The self-appointed gurus attract followers, supporters, sometimes major contributors of money. In return, they supply answers that are largely spun out of whole cloth. But people want, apparently need, something to believe in, and they are only too happy to oblige. When faced with UFO secrets, people want magic answers. They seek shortcuts to truth. Life and nature are exceedingly complex, and simplistic answers are always easier to understand than accept. They relieve the tension of not knowing and provide peace of mind, especially if they are the answers which we desperately want to hear. I find it impossible to take issue with anything that he says here. Being, 19, being 1999, in addition to the Y2K crisis, we also have a regular column in which the magazine provides short reviews of websites that all seem to have long, impossible to type in correctly on the first try URLs. There's also, and, and this might be my favorite thing in any of these magazines, a strangely needy and desperate call for subscribers. Subscribe now. Come aboard UFO Magazine. Where else can you find the most up-to-date, informative, well-written, critical, scientific, human-being-oriented stories of UFOs and related phenomenon? 
nowhere else but UFO Magazine. We are read not only by scientists at universities and research laboratories from coast to coast, by people from the Ivy League to the Junior League, but by astronomers, biologists, and the very technicians who put the touches on spacecraft that venture out into the cold darkness beyond the solar system. We are also read by people just like you, people who want to know what's happening in a subject that the government doesn't want you to know about. We can't say that Fox Mulder reads UFO magazine, but we can say that in a very uncanny way, the cases Mulder and Scully investigate come right off the front pages of UFO magazine. Before there were Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, there were Don Ecker and Vicki Cooper, boldly going where no reporters have gone before. Now you can, too. With our expanded staff, our movie reviews, our web watchers, our scientific experts, we're breaking stories you'll never see in the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, or even the Village Voice. How can you be guaranteed to be a member of the elite group, these happy and well-informed few on the very cusp of UFO info each and every month? Subscribe. You know it. Resistance is futile. You will assimilate it. Call us at a phone number and tell Bill or Sharon or Vicky or anyone who happens to pick up the phone, I want my UFO. Or you can turn to page 63, take out the card, check the appropriate boxes, and drop it in any mailbox. Don't worry, we'll bill you. That is the most pandering, ridiculous, dated nonsense I have ever heard. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Oh, ha, 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 a Borg joke in 1999. I want my UFO. Yes, yes, yes. You, yeah, oh, anyway. And there you were. There you were. You laugh at this ad, but, but you're sitting there reading the village voice, wondering when they're going to report that UFO news like some kind of sucker. And remember, UFO magazine is not only read by scientists, but also by other kinds of scientists. And honestly, I still have no idea what the Junior League is. All you have to do, if you want to you know, be smarter than me and figure out who the Junior League is apparently, give your credit card info to whoever picks up the phone at UFO Magazine. It'll be absolutely fine. Finally, finally, can I just say that uh, I wanted to cut some out of that ad, but I also wanted to demonstrate that no ad, no print ad, should have so much text that it takes two minutes to read at a normal pace. That's ridiculous. So last thing in UFO Magazine, there were personal ads. Uh, there were personal ads here in 1999, long before George Norrie was shilling Paranormal Date or whatever it's called. UFO Magazine was providing an outlet for the lonely to find companionship. Former government researcher seeks a real ET female for companionship. I am 50, never married, interested in science, the arts, music, history, etc. No abductees need reply. Single white male, 41, desires contact with single white female, 35 to 40, for pen pal and possible future relations. Interests, UFOs, Sitchin's work, Art Bell listener, other outside interests. I'm also an inmate, unfortunately, in Arizona. Single white male, 25, desires contact and build long-term friendships worldwide with those interested in UFO and related matters, including the well-known Portuguese miracles of Fatima. I'm sure it was a UFO phenomena. Ask me about it. 
I've also had two experiences of my own. I'll be waiting for letters from males or females 20 to 40. I'll answer only to serious letters. I'd like to be contacted also by those who know about ICA stones. Can write in English, Spanish, French, or Portuguese. I, um, I don't have a joke. I, I just really hope this worked for these people. I'll be right back. I've got to flip the cassette tape over. Okay, and we're back. I really did flip the cassette tape over there. Next up, we have Notes from the Hangar, the magazine of the National UFO Museum, uh, which was edited by Jim Keith. Now, you've heard me talk about Jim Keith a lot on this show. The Archives of the Unexplained has a few issues uh, scanned in of notes, uh, notes from the Hangar, all from 1991. And it's interesting to see what the state of the so-called field was at the time. We're deep in the midst of the abduction phenomenon dominating things, but the extreme paranoia promoted by people like John Lear and Bill Cooper had, at least amongst those on the cutting edge of stuff, faded a bit, and it's replaced by a healthy appreciation of the degree to which government disinformation could be used to influence UFO believers. We heard echoes of this in Richard Hall's column in the 1992 UFO magazine from uh, before I flipped the tape. The second issue of Notes from the Hangar has a number of things I find interesting. First is an article by a Lucian Cormeta about Pine Gap, a joint U.S.-Australian military base in Australia, where apparently there were, um, it's sort of the Australian Area 51 is how it was described at the time. He reaches the following conclusion based on his research. In conclusion... Let me tell you that no one knows for sure what goes on in these high-security, top-secret underground installations, and that, at least for the time being, Pine Gap keeps, it, keeps its secrets. Is it used for biological research? Genetic experiments on humans? Perhaps it is simply used for research on electronics, or electromagnetic propulsion. Or maybe it's used for all of them simultaneously. Okay, really, that makes the entire article kind of kind of pointless. We also have from Jim Keith an article entitled, Whose Saucers Are They? He begins it this way. There is no question in my mind that there is a conspiracy at the top running things, or at least attempting to run them. As to the nature of the conspiracy, that's another question. I had always assumed that it was big money rubbing shoulders and making secret deals in cabals like the Bilderbergers, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission, but lately I haven't been so sure. I've begun to take seriously the thought that there might really be a centuries-old agenda among the Illuminati, not to mention the Templars, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Knights of Malta, or the Priory of Sion. No, I haven't completely bought into the Lear-Cooper-Hamilton-English-Lazar scenario that the boys behind this age-old conspiracy really run things from outer space, or even the inner earth, but I'm no longer dismissing it out of hand either. He goes on to explore some of the extant conspiracy theories concerning various secret societies, as well as the arguments of Kiel and Valet about the possible not-alien-but-not-us origins of whatever the phenomenon might, might be. This article would be greatly expanded into the uh, the later book, Saucers of the Illuminati, um, which I believe we covered in one of our early Read These Books episodes, and which I continue to highly recommend. Um, Keith goes on to, uh, to sort of settle things this way. 
Who knows? Maybe the U.S. is at the top a Masonic or other occult conspiracy after all, and maybe Bush has fired the starting gun for its next evolutionary transformation with his talk about a new world order. Whatever the case, the logic is inescapable. If the saucers, even some of them, do have a terrestrial origin, then there is a good chance that they are owned by the group that some have called the Illuminati. So, still sort of on the uh, on the conspiracy tip, but um, but but sort of interesting. Um, if you haven't read Saucers of the Illuminati, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great read. Now, next up, uh, the Excluded Middle was a magazine published in the 1990s by Greg Bishop and edited by Bishop Robert Larson and Peter Stencil. And represents some of the, some of the most wide-ranging coverage during the time, covering ufology, the paranormal, conspiracy culture, or parapolitics, if you like, and other weirdness. Uh, actual issues are becoming rarer by the day. I've got exactly one. It was a gift from friend of the show, Adam Go Rightly, and I just want to highlight a couple great things in that issue, which appeared, as far as I can tell, at the very end of 1999, as it announces a website coming in February 2000. It's issue nine, and proudly proclaims on the cover that it includes, quote, absolutely nothing on Y2K. The issue includes an interview with Army remote viewer Joe McMonagall, an interview by Adam Go Rightly with 60s activist and accused murderer Ira Einhorn. Einhorn was accused of the 1977 murder of Holly Maddox, his ex-girlfriend. At the time of the interview, um, he was in France, and the French and U.S. governments were arguing over extradition. He would, in fact, be extradited in 2001, convicted in 2002, and he's currently serving a life sentence. It's an interesting article that touches on Einhorn's role in establishing Earth Day, um, his interest in computer technology, and other stuff, including his involvement with, uh, with psychic Yuri Geller. My favorite thing about this issue, however, is a great editorial by uh, editorial comments by Greg Bishop. The walls continue to close in. After almost 10 years at this, I'm beginning to see some verifiable connections between UFOs, weird phenomena, occultism, psychedelia, spirit, shamanism, parapsychology, and the power structure's interest and involvement with all of this. Where does it lead? Take a look at one of the late Jim Keith's books, Saucers of the Illuminati. It's there, or part of it's there. Look at Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception. It's there, too. It's in The Octopus, Secret Government and the Ta Death of Danny Casolaro by Keith and Ken Thomas. Add to this the Archeus' Project's publication, Cyber-Biological Studies of the Imaginal Component in the UFO Contact Experiments, and a healthy dose of Timothy Leary and John Keel, as well as the works of Aleister Crowley, and top off with Dean Radin's The Conscious Universe and Robert John's Margins of Reality, and you have the soup that brings hungry minds together for a feast. These minds are found everywhere, in our government, behind the closed doors of major corporations, scattered throughout academia, running around topless at Burning Man, and prowling all over the Internet. As Bill Moore said recently, quote, just because someone's in a position of authority doesn't mean they're not marginally insane, end quote. It's not all good, but then it's not all evil either. We just need to use the tools wisely. Greg Bishop. 
So as I said, issues of excluded middle are, are getting harder and harder to come by, but you can get Wake Up Down There, a massive anthology of articles from the magazine. It was published in 2000 by Adventures Unlimited Press and is available from Amazon, from Adventures Unlimited, and probably wherever you find books. Finally, much like Excluded Middle, Ken Thomas's magazine Steam Shovel Press covered a wide gamut, although much more heavily weighted toward conspiratorial, parapolitical topics. In early 1995, it, uh, it featured an, artic- an interview with Glenn Campbell. No, not the singer, the, um, the other Glenn Campbell. The Glenn Campbell who wrote the Area 51 Viewer's Guide and uh, produced the, uh, the, the e-newsletter The Groom Lake Desert Rant. Campbell lived near Area 51 in Nevada and had some interesting takes on what was going on there and some interesting experiences around the base. Thomas asked if he thought that what was going on within the UFO community, including some of the stories about Area 51, were disinformation and uh, that what many people were seeing at Area 51 um, was actually human technology. I don't really believe that. I don't believe that there is this vast disinformation plot. Even if there are saucers out there, I just don't think the government could pull off that sort of complex thing. I know many of these personalities involved here, and I can see that they are not government agents. They're human beings doing their own thing and often screwing themselves up. I don't see the government plot there. Interestingly, the Groom Lake Desert Rat newsletter is most interesting to me because of the heavy focus not on the potential alien cover-up happening in at Area 51, but because of its focus on long-standing concerns in the West about land usage, especially public land, and conflicts between residents and agencies like the Bureau of Land Management. The type of things that Campbell and others who actually lived in the area were concerned about included, for example, the lack of government transparency about potential environmental and health hazards from their installations. In this excerpt from Groom Lake Desert Rat Number 5 from March 21, 1994, Campbell uh, sets out this important issue. What do Lincoln County residents think about having America's most popular secret base within their borders? Like other rural denizens of the Wild West, we are conservative, patriotic folk who proudly wave the flag at every opportunity while cursing the federal government in any form. Like citizens anywhere, our strongest loyalties tend to run along economic lines. We love the federal government when it gives our people jobs and pays our local government lots of money. We despise it when it takes away our money, makes us fill out forms, and forces us to obey a lot of irritating rules. We also hate the federal government when it does unpleasant things to us, like kill our friends and neighbors, which it has done in Lincoln County in the past. In the years of the above-ground atomic testing at the Nevada test site, local residents were the closest downwinders, the first to receive the fallout. And it seems that nearly everyone who was living here then has witnessed someone close die a long and painful death from some mysterious cancer. You're perfectly safe here, the government officials said, as they fled the area themselves. So yeah, there's a a long history of shady government dealings in the West, and resentment from there has persisted. Uh, Tangentially related, if you've not listened to the podcast series Bundyville, I encourage you to do so. It's not UFO-related, but it does deal with some of the same issues of Western land use we see here. As you probably know, we have just scratched the surface of the world of 90s UFO stuff and UFO-related magazines. 
What strikes me about them is how much seems very familiar if you pay attention um, if, if you pay attention to some of the current uh, discourse today. Depending on who you read and what you read, you see, you saw back in the day a lot of admiration for Jacques Vallée and John Keel. You saw a discussion of military and intelligence operations aimed at misinforming and disinforming the UFO community. You saw the intrusion of political and religious ideology and agendas into the discussion of UFOs. I would argue that in some very narrow ways, we're in a bit of a 90s moment right now. But that's an argument for another day. Meanwhile, we're open to feedback from you folks about what your favorite magazines were in the 1990s. If you were living the saucer life back then, what did you keep your eye out for at the newsstand, convention hall, or mailbox? Let us know via the usual channels, and we'll, uh, we'll share some of those in the next episode. And, you know, keep reading. Links to available scans of materials I mentioned are in the show notes. And um, as is a link to Wake Up Down There, the anthology of articles, interviews, and editorials from the Excluded Middle magazine. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>